Amen. Please turn with me uh, to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 22 this morning. If you spent the first half of the year going through the book of Acts, paused, spent some time exploring the topic of prayer for the past several weeks, and now for the summer, we're continuing where we left off last summer and picking it up in Psalm 22 and continuing through the Psalms sequentially till the end of the summer. Psalm 22 is a lengthy psalm. We won't read the entire psalm. But to anchor our time this morning, we'll read verses 1 through 8. So Psalm 22, beginning at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, and thrown on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we draw near to you this morning because we know that in Christ you have not forsaken us. So Lord, would you draw near to us this morning as we give thought to the psalm as we give thought to the, the Christocentric focus, as we consider the, the distress of the psalmist as he penned these words through our time together this morning, help us to see the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the churches greatest hymns were born out of suffering. Before Horatio Spafford penned his hymn that we know so well today, he had lost his four daughters out at sea. Only afterwards did he write that it is well with my soul. Though Hymnist and poet William Cooper was a man who was very familiar with deep bouts of depression, himself suffered through insanity, even placed in an asylum, went through several incidents where he intended to take his own life. Even this great hymnist and poet, through his suffering, wrote the words, in ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, 
that clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. And blessings, yea, and blessings, and in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. It's hard to understand what is it, oh, how is it that the suffering can produce such words? How is it that some feel so inclined, so compelled to take their calamity, to take their suffering, and to put them to lyrics, to set them to music, to put them into poetic words? We can broaden this out to consider even the broader topic of just of worship. What is it about suffering that can produce such worship? I mean, just think of Job, a man who literally lost everything. Lost his material possessions, lost his wealth, lost his children, his family, save his wife. Even lost his health. And even after it all, said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Which begs the question, what is this connection between suffering and worship? Does suffering somehow produce worship? We read here in Psalm 22, and we only read the first eight verses. And even just the verse eight verses, we see that there is the penning of this great suffering of the psalmist. And there are some rays of light certainly in the psalm, and praise God for that, but there is still much suffering that he describes in the rest of the psalm. And again, it's interesting, at least to me, that he puts his suffering to words, to music, to poetry, to lyrics. So considering this this connection between suffering and worship, considering the words of the psalmist, let us sort of dive deep into this psalm and consider what it says and be going through different sections in the psalm. won't follow the psalm sort of sequentially. And with the time we have, we won't get into the entirety of the psalm, it being 31 verses, but let us consider what the psalm says, the plight, the suffering, but also how it also points us to joy and hope. First, the innocent sufferer and his God. Verse 3 says there, Yet, despite his suffering, yet you are holy, he says, speaking to God and throwing on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. So immediately he goes from his suffering to talk about God. and He says, you are holy. When the psalmist, in the book of Psalms, when he ascribes to God that he is holy, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often in the Psalms. But when he does, there's always a connection to God's salvation. And here, I think the salvation 
that it's pointing to is salvation of the Exodus, when God were, where the people of God were enslaved in, Israel, in Egypt, and God delivered them. And so this is the God that he is crying out to. This is the God that he is saying that you are holy, that you are holy. And we see this holiness, this separateness, this godness of God in the deliverance of his people as they cried out unto him. And his point, in ascribing to God his holiness and pointing God to what he has done in the past, namely in deliverance, is that he's part of that covenant community. The psalmist is not this outsider who stands outside of God's community, but he's very much a part of the community. In fact, not only is he part of the community, but the community is in a way represented in him because he is the king of that community. It's quite startling when we read these words in Psalm 22, beginning with, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you consider what's, what he's written just one psalm ago in Psalm 21. Just consider the first three verses of Psalm 21. It says, O oh Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. And it continues. Essentially, the, the, the psalm points to how the king has this great favor from the Lord. You had to have this idea that he's sort of God's spoiled child. That he loves to favor. That he loves to bless. And so then how is it that we get from Psalm 21 to then Psalm 22 where there's, there's this, this God-forsakenness? What happened? Where is God's delight? Making the case, he's part of the community, the favored community. So then where is this favor? Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Just as a child a nursing babe cannot help but depend on their parents for provision, for sustenance, for care. The idea here is that so the psalmist, from the day that he was born, that he's been in the hands of God. God has been caring for him. That his life has always been in God's hands. And he might also be speaking to multi-generational worship or faithfulness, his being a part of the covenant community, being born into that covenant community, so that, such as, so like Joshua had once said, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord or we will serve the Lord. I don't think he just means just his own present house, his immediate house, but he's thinking about generationally. No, my house from here on forth. The family tree will change from here on forth. We will all worship the Lord. might be the same idea carried here that 
You have been my God from the very beginning. I was raised up knowing who God is and to believe and trust in Him. So in his case that he's making is that if God can create and sustain it in the womb and out of the womb, then surely God can sustain my life here and now, even in my present calamity and distress. So where is God's answer from heaven? What this section and verses 3 and 5 share in common is that helplessness is met with divine aid. That the prayers of the helpless children of God never, ever go unanswered. Because they have a God who is faithful. If every time I went into the store with my children... I bought them something, no matter what reason I was going to the store for. I was picking up something, or dropping something off, or looking at something. If every time I take a child with me into the store, I buy them something, I'm setting up a pattern. And that pattern is that my children never leave the store empty-handed because I always get them something. And then when that pattern is broken, for whatever reason, right, they become shocked. They have a hard time receiving that because they have this expectation that dad is going to get me something every time I go into the store with him. God has set up this pattern of faithfulness that when his people cry out unto him, he answers. And so then it is no wonder that the psalmist is in agony and wondering where is divine hate? I know you to be a faithful God. Am I wrong? Which then just sets the tension of that first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which then takes us to secondly, the innocent sufferer and his lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, still sort of with the, the obvi- one of the obvious things in this psalm, for those of you who are very familiar with the Gospels, for many of you who have read through the Psalms, or some of the Psalms who have read through the Psalm before, or some of you who have read through the Gospels, right, you notice something pretty quickly, probably when we first read the verse, just when we first, first read that, verse 1, something clicked, something came to mind, and that is, Jesus said those very words, didn't he? At the cross. Now the temptation is to immediately go to the cross, right? We read these words, wait, Jesus said those things, so let's immediately go to the Gospels and see where this was, where did Jesus say this, right? I understand the temptation, and it's good, to consider the Christological focus, to consider what in the world does this psalm have to do with Jesus Christ. But let's slow down for a moment. Before we get there, I think it's good for us to consider the psalmist. Let's not immediately go to Christ and leave the psalmist behind, leave the psalm behind. 
the psalmist is describing the depths of his agony. And as much as we might resist desire to do so, in order to really understand and and appreciate that much more what Christ has done for us, especially through the agony that he suffered on the cross on your behalf and mine, it would do us well to consider the agony of the psalmist because this will only highlight the glory of the cross. In verse 14, he continues in his lament, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is a description of someone who has come to the end of himself. There is no strength left. He has no energy to carry on. He can barely hold himself up. His strength is dried up like a piece of clay. The tune or music of his life is played only in the minor keys. The portrait of his life is painted only in dark tones. He waits for the dispelling of the dark, ominous clouds, but they will not give way to reveal any light at all. He may very well be describing the, very, the darkest day of his life. And surely we have experienced days like that, perhaps not as heavy or to the degree that we are reading here about the psalmist's experience. But no human being is a stranger to suffering, and Christians certainly are no strangers to suffering. Before the, the building of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon was preaching in the Surrey Music Hall, the only place at that time, I believe, that could house or accommodate thousands of people you know, for his growing congregation and the many people who would visit the church on a Sunday morning. It was one Sunday morning as he was conducting the service that one scoundrel yelled out, Fire! Intending to excite mass panic, and he was successful. People were immediately out of the seats, rushing to the exit, stampeding over one another. The balcony at the top gave way and came crumbling down. Seven people died that day. Twenty, over 20 others were seriously injured, being one of the darkest days in Charles Spurgeon's life. So dark was that day that he suffered severe depression. And the depression actually became this visiting friend throughout the rest of his life. Some will even argue that Spurgeon never fully recovered from that disaster. There are moments where there is a sense of God-forsakenness, when we feel as if God has abandoned us, when we feel as God has left us. There are times when our theology conflicts with our lived experience. I know this. I understand this. I was taught this. I believe this. But then here's my life. 
and I can't make sense of the two. How do you put this together? How do you combine this? It doesn't make sense. I think that is the reality that the psalmist is experiencing as he's writing these words. And he continues, verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Because there's a picture here of these evildoers, these enemies like dogs, who are barking and snarling and even biting at him, and he, with the little or no strength that he has, because he's all skin and bones at this point, is just trying as much as he can to push them away and kick them out of the way, and as he's doing so, the dogs are just biting at his hands and his feet, tearing up his clothes, gambling over his clothes as a way of proclaiming victory over his life. And then to top it all off, there's this icing on the cake of this dark, bitter, sour, stomach-churning dessert of suffering. And that icing comes to us in the form of a question, a question that gnaws slowly at the heart. This question that grounds this conflict between theology, and one's lived experience. And that question is drawn out for us in verses 6 through 8. He says, but I am a worm, describing how he is being treated. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So then the question that is drawn out is, is he God's delight? Is he? Is he the same man that we read of in Psalm 21? Is that the same person? It doesn't sound like it. These mockers and these jeers are saying, there's no way you're God's delight. If you were, God would deliver you. Right, the question is, will his trust in God be vindicated? Or will it end up in embarrassment and in shame? So the agony is heightened all the more by just the nature of David's office. I mean, he's, as I said, he's king. And as a king, a king in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, a king is a, is, is a kind of God's son. We see this in Psalm 2. He's favored by God. He's blessed by God because he's called to rule in the name of God. 
And so this office, his office, comes with divine protection. Not only that, but David is described as a man who's after the heart of God. So then, where is this divine attention? Where is it? Was it there one moment and then gone the next? Maybe he never had it. There's one thing we learn, if you've been a student of the Scripture for some time, is that evidence is not always evidence. That, that, we're, not, that we're not to judge, not always to judge by what we see. Ecclesiastes makes the case that just because a person has status and wealth and the greatest possessions that one can possess in this life does not mean that they have the favor of God, but rather may be a form of God's judgment. That the person who lacks, that the person who is destitute of many things in this world, and that the person who suffers great does not necessarily mean that that person has found the disfavor of God. Right, Job is a case in point. Right, remember, if you know the story, right, even his friends thought that he had something wrong. What did you do, Job? What did you do? Surely you must have done something to deserve this suffering. But you and I know there was nothing he did. Now there's a transition. Remarkably, there's actually a transition in the psalm where that the first half is really a lot of lament. There is some glimmer of light in it, but a lot of it is lament. But then there's a transition that takes place in verse 22, which takes us to thirdly, the innocent sufferer and his worship. By the way, the reason why I keep titling these headings with the innocent sufferer is not because David is perfect or sinless, but to point to the fact that there was nothing that he did to merit the God-forsakenness that he is currently experiencing in the psalm. Verse 22, we see this transition. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. And continuing on to the rest of the psalm, it points to the, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of worship. He's saying that He Himself will worship, not only that, but He will call the entire covenant community, let us worship. Let us worship the Lord. The rest of the psalm points to the breath of worship. Verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. What does this breath of worship look like? All the ends of the earth will worship God. They will remember, pointing to reverence and worship. Habakkuk 2.14 points to this promise. that says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
the promise is that the mocking and the persecution by the hands and mouth of the wicked will one day be small, a small whisper in comparison to the boisterous worship of God's people scattered across the globe. The second half of the psalm points to the height of worship, verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. From the highest to the lowest, from those who have much to those who have very little, even missing the basic necessities of life, even those who are on the brink of death, without discrimination, without partiality, there will be worship to the great God of heaven. We also see the length of worship. Verse 30, posterity, pointing to generations, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it, that he has saved. Points to multi-generational worship, that not only will I worship, but my children will worship. Not just my children, but my grandchildren will also worship the Lord because my house will declare that God only is Lord. Right? Isn't that what we aim for? Isn't that what we ought to aim for? As parents with children in a home, we aim for multi-generational faithfulness that produces multi-generational worship to the God who transcends all generations. The length, the height, and the breadth of worship speaks to the depth of worship. This is a call to the covenant people of God to drown out the mocking and jeering of the pagans with the worship of God. goes to show that deep suffering can produce deep worship. That loud jeering can be responded to with louder worship. And that the stronger the trials, that stronger trials can produce stronger worship. And verse 24 gives us the ground of this worship. It says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Right, such varying emotions. I mean, we go from God, why have you forsaken me, to ascribing to God his holiness, to the continuing in his lament, and then turning to worship, I will worship you. Even though I feel this God-forsakenness, I know that God hears the cries of the afflicted, that he has not forsaken those who cry out to him. What is the connection between suffering and worship? Does suffering produce worship? It can, it doesn't always. For some, suffering drives them deeper into Christ, into deeper worship. 
And sadly for some, suffering causes them to abandon ship. But I think a lesson for us here as we consider the psalm, not only the worship, but the suffering that we read of in the psalm is that that worship sustains in suffering. Worship sustains in suffering. When calamity strikes, leaving you with a concussion so that you are not oriented, so that you cannot understand what the left is and what the right is, worship has a way of reorienting you and calibrating you so you can think clearly and theologically and continue to put your hope and trust in God. So now having considered the psalmist's personal agony and his worship, we're ready to consider now the Christological focus of the psalm. Right? We would not be doing justice to the psalm if we did not consider what in the world it has to do with Christ. I mean, the very words in the psalm begs for us to go to the cross. So fourth and lastly, the innocent sufferer and his vindication. As we consider the psalm, did God intend a Christ-centric focus in the psalm? And I think the answer is yes. When we consider David, when we consider his office, who he was to be, when we consider what he was to do, we consider that the king is intended to be a kind of God's son who had the blessings and the favor of God so that he can go out and rule God's people, so that he can be this sort of this mediator of blessings between God and the people of God. The very office of the king was intended to ultimately point to Jesus Christ. So the entire psalm is intended to get us to look to Jesus Christ while also considering the personal agony of the psalmist who penned these words. So that when we look to Jesus and we read his words upon the cross, when he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just looking for words to describe his agony. But even as he's hanging there on the cross, he's teaching us to read our Bibles, to help us to see that not only did the office of King David was intended to point to Jesus Christ, but even the deep suffering and agony of the psalmist in Psalm 22 was intended to point to the great suffering and agony experienced by Jesus Christ. To Jesus, the one who suffered in our place. So that when we consider those words, those groanings, that crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can better understand the agony that he endured. For Jesus, that agony on the cross was a kind of hell. The community 
that he was a part of, the covenant community, is now mocking him and jeering him. He, being the one who represents that community, is disgraced by that community. He who was preserved during the incarnation, born to a virgin, had no choice but to depend in the sovereign and gentle hands of his heavenly Father. Now he sees that that gentle and sovereign hand has been removed from his life as he hung on the cross. The one to whom the heavens declared by the mouth of God, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, now no longer has the favor of God as he's hanging on the cross. Matthew 27, 39 brings us to that same penetrating question that we saw in verses 3 and 5 of of Psalm 22. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, Tim, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God and let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The same mocking that psalmist experienced was intended to point to this, this experience that Jesus endured on the cross. But to a much stronger degree. He's saying the Son of God, let us see. Prove it, Jesus. Let us see. Are you really God's delight? Will your trust actually be vindicated? Let us see. Let us see if there is salvation for you. You said you're the Son of God. Well, let's, let's see it. Is he God's delight? We see him there hanging on the cross. The one forsaken by God. No longer in the favor of God. Abandoned by his covenant community. Is he God's delight? Will he be vindicated? And Philippians 2.9 answers that question. Philippians 2.9, after describing the humiliation of Jesus Christ, becoming in our likeness and going all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross, it tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the answer from heaven is yes. It's a resounding yes, that he is indeed God's delight, and that his faith in God will be vindicated. It was vindicated through his resurrection and then ultimately to his exaltation to the right hand of God. 
so that the one who was forsaken on the cross was forsaken so that you and I might be reconciled to God. So that the one who was disfavored by God there on the cross, that through him we then instead might be favored by God. He who was not delivered in his greatest hour of need endured it so that you and I might be delivered in our greatest hour of need. The cries of the innocent sufferer on the cross leads to worship because it produces this tsunami of worship as those who believe in Christ Jesus receive his salvation and have now nothing but to res- but respond to that salvation with praise and glory and exaltation. And that this tsunami of worship will one day drown out every mock and every jeer of the unbelieving because of our faith in Jesus Christ. that when we do suffer and we have this question nagging us am I really God's delight will my faith in God be vindicated we need only to look to the cross where that question is answered with a yes Jesus suffered on our behalf so that we can worship today. It is through that suffering that we can worship Jesus Christ. Romans 10.11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We will never regret it. We will never ever regret putting our faith in Jesus Christ, ever. Dear friend, if you have yet to believe in this glorious Savior, I don't know all there is to know about what your life is like right now. Whether your life is well and pleasant, whether your life is marked with suffering in this time, but the promise of the Scriptures is that whether you are in time of pleasant and joy and happiness, or whether you're in a time of suffering, the judgment of God will one day come, and that at that time there will be nothing but suffering and agony and distress and loud cries and tears and the gnashing of teeth because you have failed to trust in this precious Savior who suffered on the cross for sinners. as believers, we would desire for you, for your life, to be filled with worship and praise. Jesus is the one who gives purpose and reason to all of our suffering in this life. And Jesus, it is through Jesus that we can worship, and it is through Jesus that all our tears of suffering will one day be wiped away. So there will only be glory and praise. Believe 
in Christ Jesus. Call out to the suffering Savior. Be a part of the covenant community so that you may rejoice in that community and so that you might be highly favored with that community. The promise of Romans 10, 11 produces worship. Confidence, our confidence in Christ produces worship and worship sustains us in suffering. When we suffer, for whatever reasons there might be, we can suffer well. Not because of anything in us, but because Christ Jesus suffered on our place to save us, to spare us from the wrath of God. So that we might be welcomed as children of God. It is through His suffering that we can worship in joy and in gladness and seasons of plenty and seasons of lack and seasons of prosperity and seasons of poverty and seasons of bliss and even in seasons of suffering. Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, we are a people who will never tire of singing of your suffering. It is not that we delight in your suffering. It is not that we are glad at your suffering. But we rejoice and we worship and we sing of your suffering because it is through your suffering that we can worship today. It is because, it is because you suffered that we today are saved. It is because you suffered that our salvation will be perfected one day, resulting in glory. Lord, as we think about even the application, what might be our application for us as we consider the psalm, as we consider the Christological focus of the psalm and how it points to Jesus Christ, how, what do we do with these things? And for many here, perhaps they have already put this into application by just simply saying amen, by just simply saying thank you by just simply saying we worship you.